Shit. 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 We back. Okay, wait. It's season two, guys. Gotta get <laughs> gotta get hype. Gotta get hype. I'm hype. Season two. It's season two. I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Hey, Ben. What's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? <laughs> His virginity. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Welcome back, <laughs> friends, folks from all over. <laughs> I always forgot how to podcast. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to season two of Deep Cut. Eli, you want to start us off with a little introduction again? Yes. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Welcome to season two of Deep Cut. We have a fun run of episodes in the pipeline for you, and we are going to try to avoid a sophomore slump. We're going to (laughs) try our best. I say we lean into it. Yeah, we'll lean into the slump. I'm slumping really hard. This episode is going to be one hour of silence and breathing. (laughs) Well, okay, first, a little bit of housekeeping. If you heard us before in our first season, we usually had one episode where we talked about both the popular pick and our personal favorite. But this season, we're going to be splitting up our popular pick and deep cut pick into separate individual episodes. For you, that means you get more episodes. And for us, we have to record more episodes. Yeah. But (laughs) they'll be shorter episodes. You only need to watch one movie to listen. (laughs) Yeah, the homework you have to do is not going to be Don't call it homework. Yeah, no, it's not homework. <laughs> Fun work. Fun work. <laughs> okay. But since this is a big season opener, we're going to do a special twist on that. We're talking about Joel and Ethan Cohen. They have a huge, reputable filmography. So we're going to talk about a popular pick, which we're doing today. And we're going to do three deep cut pick episodes, which means each of us gets to pick one movie from the filmography to talk about. You are listening to the popular pick episode right now. We went back and forth on which movie that would be because you could really make the case for a few different ones by the Coens as to which is the popular pick. Ultimately, we decided to go with the Coens 2007 Best Picture Academy Award winning No Country for Old Men. And if you want to know our three upcoming Coen deep cut picks, stay tuned on our feed here and on our social media at Deep Cut Pod. First, let's get some foundational information on the Coen brothers. Hey, here we go. Well, as the the resident Coen noob, um, I volunteered <laughs> to do this very brief and very bare bones introduction to Joel and Ethan Coen. Through the course of these next four episodes, we can all sort of fill in the gaps a little bit listeners and and co-hosts. Joel Cohen was born November 29th, 1954. Ethan Cohen was born September 21st, 1957. They're brothers. They're popularly known as the Cohen brothers. They're American film directors, producers, screenwriters, and editors. They were both born and raised in Minnesota and developed a love for cinema through watching movies, specifically Italian movies, on their television. Joel went to NYU for film production 
and Ethan went to some other school that I forgot to write down. <laughs> but it was not for film, so I decided not to <laughs> write it down. He studied philosophy, if I'm not wrong. Yes, yes, it was I was philosophy. reading about this. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And in 1984, the brothers wrote and directed Blood Simple, which was their first feature film together. And it was set in Texas. The film tells the tale of a shifty, sleazy bar owner who hires a private detective to kill his wife and her lover. The film contains elements or themes or ideas that point to future film projects that Joel and Ethan will work on later on in their career, which included distinctive homages to genre movies, in this case, noir and horror, plot twists layered over a simple story, dark humor, and mise-en-scene. The film was well-received and won awards for Joel's direction at both the Sundance and Independent Spirit Awards. The brothers went on to write and direct around 24 films and were recognized for their talents having been nominated for a number of awards and achievements. Wait, where do you get this number 24 from? From Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> I only counted 18. That it probably includes shorts and... Yeah. And, that includes yeah. shorts and like a film that's not even made Other yet. Other films. <laughs> <laughs> I said around 24 films. You don't have to fact check. I'm not Wikipedia. Even though I, I did draw a lot of these from Wikipedia. I'm not Wikipedia. Or deep cut, not deep fact. <laughs> No Country for Old Men, which is the film that we're going to talk about today, won them the best Oscar for directing and best film, as well as a BAFTA for best director. They were also awarded the Oscar for best original screenplay for Fargo in 1996, which is a film that I don't think we're going to talk about on the pod this We might talk about it tangentially. Probably not. Yes. I have one fun fact about Fargo. I don't know if you guys seen it recently, but I, I didn't notice this until today. <laughs> it's just one thing. It's the briefcase. The briefcase in Fargo is exactly the same as the briefcase in No Country. Oh, That's so funny. Wow. And I, I didn't realize this until I watched this, both of them yeah. on the same day. And I was like, huh. wait a minute. <laughs> it's like a continuation. Because yeah. it's a briefcase that opens up really weirdly. It has like flaps on the side. It's like a boxy briefcase. I've I've had one of those in my house before. Wow. Uh, Ben's trying to tell us he has illegal drug money. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sell drugs in my home. As the Cohen noob, I have... I have a question. Yeah. So I would say that both Fargo and No Country for Old Men are popular picks. How did we decide on going with No Country for Old Men for this episode? No idea. I think I might have been the driver on that one. Sort of an arbitrary deciding point is the accolades that No Country received or like the critical praise it received. Mm -hmm. But with No Country, I would argue that it is their technically finest film. Just the craft is out of this world. Mm Mm-hmm on the visual and something I really want to talk about, Sonic Front. Everything looks and sounds incredible. The performances are all, everyone's showing up tenfold. Just to add to this conversation, which is completely irrelevant, which is which is <laughs> yes. more popular, quote unquote, right? <laughs> completely useless conversation. I feel like Fargo probably takes that crown, actually. Oh. Because I feel like when people think of Co- the Coens, they think of Fargo. Well, I think because mm. Fargo is more classically... Coens yeah. because No Country is so serious of a movie and I feel like the Coens are known for their humor a lot more. When you think about the Coens and you think about what people f- this is completely a mm-hmm. feeling of the universe thing like if I just telepathically connect 
with everyone who has watched a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> I feel like Fargo is the one on top. <laughs> in terms of just yeah. being in people's wow. minds. But I don't know. I mean, on Letterboxd, Fargo is, is in front of no country, but <laughs> yeah, that's also not relevant. We are unfortunately not a Letterboxd-sponsored podcast. Hashtag get that Letterboxd sponsorship. Not, not yet. <laughs> oh, and last, last Coen Brothers fact, and arguably most important, Joel has been married to actress Frances McDormand since 1984. Since Blood Simple. What a power couple. That's nice. The Coen Brothers are also the deep cut directors to whom I've been physically the closest Mm. at the 2018 New York film festival. Ethan Cohen walked past me before a screening of Roma. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. (laughs) I don't know what he looks like. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about our personal connections to the Coens. Ben, what was the first Cohen movie that you encountered? I honestly cannot remember. I will say that because of the podcast, I decided to go back into the Coens and, I'm trying to rewatch as much as I possibly can. So in the past week, I've seen, I think, six Cohen films. Wow. And the last time I did this was probably when I was in my late teens or early 20s, <laughs> which is a long time ago. Baby Ben. And I haven't really gone back to revisit those films until last week, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And I always have thought of myself as being a fan of Cohen. So now I'm kind of reassessing my relationship mm-hmm. to their films. I can't remember which is the first one. I don't have records of that. Probably Fargo because I was probably just trawling film websites and trying to find what I should be watching. Fargo probably came up first. Could be No Country as well. But it's been fun like to rewatch them and have such a vague, hazy memory of everything. And being like, oh, I kind of remember the scene, but also not. I don't remember like this other thing or this weird thing. Yeah, because I've seen everything except Intolerable Cruelty, Hudsucker Proxy, and The Lady Killers. Wow. Everything else I've seen, which is probably one of the highest like filmography mm. view counts I've had of any directors I've seen. And yet I could not remember much from the Coens until last week <laughs> because everything had been like kind of pushed to the back of my mind so far. I think it's a similar thing for me where it feels like they were always there. I know the first one of theirs mm. that I saw in the theaters was True Grit, which is a movie that I love. I also have a lot of distinct memories of scenes With things like No Country, I remember a lot of sounds in particular. For me, they feel very defining as a presence in American culture and particularly American Jewish sensibility. Mm -hmm. I think one of the nice things about spending so much time with the Coens across these upcoming four episodes is that they do have such a wide-spanning filmography in terms of tone and theme, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of coherence Mm -hmm. between the movies I think when we're talking about one, we're going to be able to tie in another five at any point. They're very diverse, but also very singular, which is confusing. Yeah. A lot of them are about kind of similar themes and issues, but they span genres and tones. Although I will say that revisiting the Coens has made me feel like I don't think I'm as much of a Coen fan as I used to be Mm -hmm. when I was first watching them. Like I feel they don't hold as much weight in my mind anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it's also because I think the more recent Coen films have been quite underwhelming. Hill Caesar and Bala Buster Scruggs, I had really no love for. Mm. True Grit, I don't quite remember, but it didn't really leave an impression on me in the long run. Whereas like with No Country, I remember certain scenes and images with Fargo as well. Mm. That makes sense. There are a few notable ones that I have not much love for, like Barton Fink I don't particularly like. But then... 
there are just enough of their movies that continue to be really important to me and distinctive and always remain fresh in my memory. And, you know, I have on my YouTube account a private playlist of my favorite scenes across any and mm. a bunch of those are from those few Cohen movies. What a nerd. <laughs> because of my recent, like, saturation of Cohen film scenes in my mind and like being able to very quickly juxtapose two different stories from two different films from their filmography i've realized that when one film doesn't quite do it for me from the filmography sometimes it is explained by watching a different one mm. because they are all talking about the same stuff and then because they can be kind of inscrutable sometimes in the themes and the things they're trying to say mm -hmm. When you watch something else, they kind of give you a bit of a hint or a bigger hint into what they were trying to say in a different film. Because mm -hmm. they all kind of point towards the same thing. They kind of are commenting on the same mm -hmm. stuff always again and again. When you watch a film, you're like, what is this about? I was watching A Serious Man and being a bit thrown by it and being like, I'm not really sure about this. Mm -hmm. But then, strangely enough, watching Big Lebowski was what kind of gave me some clarity on A Serious Man. Wow. Which you wouldn't think has a connection, <laughs> but there is a connection. <laughs> Yeah, I think the other way that you can slice up their filmography is between drama, thrillers, and comedies, specifically dark comedies. But there's so much DNA in common across that binary mm -hmm. that it's almost a useless division. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that their comedies tend to be of a piece. And things like, you know, Blood Simple has a lot of the blueprint for No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. A lot of their thrillers have things in common in that way. I see. I feel like I'm playing a lot of catch-up these few weeks just because you two have, have seen a big chunk of the Coen's filmography and before this week, I had only seen three <laughs> Coen Brothers movies. Which were the three? Okay, the first Coen Brothers movie, I had no choice but to watch it. It was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it was because I was projecting for a film class in college and it was one of the films that were playing. And I was like well, this is interesting. It has George Clooney in it. And that made very clear to me their tone and their style, especially when it came to, like, comedies. And then I watched Fargo after that, and I was like, oh, this makes sense now. But then also wasn't, like, moved enough to pursue their filmography even more. <laughs> yeah, especially when Fargo is supposed to be, like, one of the best yeah, ones. Well, it's, right? it's good. It's good. It's good. I, I it's it, Like, good, the performances are great. And I still, I watched, like, three seasons of the TV show. Like, it, it's not like, yeah. yeah, it was worth following up on, but just not in the Cohen's direction. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it yeah, it, I think there was, like, a really distinct directorial style and also a very interesting play on, like, actions and consequences. We talked about Farhadi last season and how he loves to play with action and consequences, but that's more like grounded in realism, but I feel like this is more mm. like like a mythic like a like mm. a, if you do something bad, like something bad will happen to you. And then I saw Raising mm. Arizona, which I didn't really care for to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nick Cage is just okay, which is like I don't know. Ooh. We probably just lost some listeners there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting to rewatch it so I can reassess what I feel about it. A friend of the podcast, Kira Newmark and Emily Fair, showed me this movie. And they were, like, so hyped for me to watch it. And then I was like, I was so bored <laughs> and felt felt really bad. Should I make you guys watch it again? <laughs> I don't mind watching it again. I could be wrong. It might be my deep cut pick, but I gotta, I gotta think. <laughs> but, but, like, crazy turn of events this week. 
I watched No Country for Old Men. I was like, holy shit, my world's, like, blown open. This is, like, one of the best films ever made. Or at least, like, in the 2000s. Like, definitely, like, one of the best films in the 2000s. And then I saw Inside Lewin Davis, and they were like, I was like, they can do that as well? That's fucked up. That's, like, really fucked up. They're, like, not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not allowed to have, to have talent. Well, you, like, you could have talent doing one thing, right? Like, you could have talent making, like, gritty, like semi-comedic murder thriller shit yeah with like that but then you can't make really good movies about folk singers like you can't do that you can't do both sensitive character studies (laughs) yeah but they have such wide range and depth of what they can do yes 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 it is so impressive two things that you said just now that i wanted to loop back to i want to bookmark how they use george clooney in one of our upcoming deep cut picks we are really going to have to dig into how they use George Clooney because the way that they cast him against his star persona is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then also I have a hot take about Fargo. Yeah. I think that story works better as a TV show with the really expansive, like multiple threads looping in and out Ooh. with the wide net of consequences, at least for the first two seasons. But I also do like the movie a lot. Yeah, so. yeah. I might agree with you. I might agree with you as well. It is also like they're different stories, similar themes, but yeah. different stories. That's and true. It's definitely like it's just like a Coen Brothers homage. Now that I've seen a little more of their films, the film is interesting because the film is more of a a parable because yeah. it's so short. I didn't realize mm. how short this film was. Whereas the the series is is an epic, you know. Yes. Like a ser- like a long series of unfortunate crazy events, mm-hmm. right? But Fargo, the film, is really just this guy tells you this crazy story he read in the paper. That's kind of what it feels like. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it has that vibe. But I don't want to go too much into Fargo because it's also fresh in my mind. <laughs> Let's talk about the movie we're supposed to talk about. Yes. Yeah. Which is friggin' amazing. <laughs> boom, boom. So a little background on the creation of No Country for Old Men. Hollywood producer and notoriously... <laughs> What do, I, what do I even say here? Like, uh, uh, fuck you, Scott Rudin. That's what we say. <laughs> he bought the rights to the Cormac McCarthy novel of the same name and mm-hmm. suggested adapting it to the Coens. I have it right here. Oh. <laughs> Ben's holding up the book in the in the video chat. Ooh. I read the first 50 pages last night just to get a feel for it. Is it good? It reads like a screenplay. Huh. It was filmed in spring 2006 in New Mexico and Texas with a budget of $25 million. And worldwide, it grossed over $171 million and domestically $74 million. That is considered a box office success. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Big profit. But the other thing going into this conversation that we should really highlight are some of the key collaborators on this movie because there are some really heavy hitters working here. Of course, Joel and Ethan Cohen. On cinematography is Roger Deakins, of course, frequent con collaborator and just one of the best living cinematographers. Mm -hmm. The score, which is minimal but there, is written by Carter Burwell, who's often either the score composer or a music supervisor for the Coens. He's also everywhere in Hollywood. Yeah, Carter. And I really, really want to shout out the sound team on No Country. So the supervising sound editor is Skip Levesay. If you don't know that name, He is a massively important sound designer and sound editor in Hollywood. He's responsible for the sound on things like Roma and Uncut Gems and most of the Coen's filmography dating back to Blood Simple. You just listed two movies with really great sound editing. (laughs) Yes, yeah. This is a quick sidebar. 
I will never forgive the Oscars for the year that Roma was up for sound awards, giving the sound awards to... It was Bo Rap, right? Bohemian Rhapsody. Can you believe that? (laughs) People listened and said, oh, Queen, it must have sound editing and sound mixing. That's why the Oscars are dumb. Instead of the landmark Dolby achievement that is Roma. Okay, rant over. (laughs) (laughs) The sound designer on No Country is Craig Berkey. Peter F. Kurland was the production sound mixer on set. The Coens get great sound on set, and that's important. We have a few examples. And Greg Orloff did Foley mixing. This is an all-star sound team, and it matters in this movie. The things that you come away with are so dependent on sound. Let's put their faces on the cover of the episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Skip. Hero of this movie. MVP. I love you, Skip. (laughs) Shout out to Skip. You you talked about the the production collaborators, but let's let's talk about a little bit about this this cast. Yeah, monster cast. A pretty yes. crazy class cast. Class. <laughs> you have Bardem. Bardem. Oh boy. You have Brolin. You have Tommy Lee Jones. TLJ. <laughs> TLJ. You have. Oh shit! I'm blanking on her name. <laughs> Kelly McDonald. Yes, Kelly McDonald. With a flawless. Texan accent. Oh yeah, I forget. She's she's Irish. Irish. Oh. <laughs> I was like, why? She could she could have been she could have been from Texas. Who knows? But no, she's from Ireland. Those are really the key players. But then the bit characters, uh, all this. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. As like, Carson yeah. Wells. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm, I forgot he was mm-hmm. in this movie, and I just forgot again. <laughs> Stephen Root. He carries so much swag with him in this movie. It's so great. Okay, talking about another collaborator here. The costumes team was Mary Zofres, Lori DeLapp, and Lizanne Scafine. The jacket that Carson Wells, Woody Harrelson's character, wears is like a business suit, but it has the kind of upper shoulder and upper back trim of like a cowboy jacket. Yeah, I noticed that. Mm. What yes. an incredible yes. decision that it's is. so good. It's just the small things. And also for this movie, they're they're wearing the same clothes the whole time. So you gotta when you pick their outfits, you gotta pick ones that count. Mm. Yeah. Wait, back to the cast. Javier Bardem, utterly incredible performance. Right. Is actually insane. Yeah. There's not much to say except that it is actually terrifying to watch. It really is. One of the things I think about with the positioning of his character, who's Anton Chigurh, the mysterious hitman who's after the money that Josh Brolin's character chances upon is that I think a lot about how we get access to him. We have a lot of scenes where we're experiencing his actions. We're very close to him. The camera's very close to him, but he's still something of a puzzle. You know, we get a sense of his principles, but we have no backstory on him. And Javier Bardem's performance really contributes to that because he is conveying so much intention and will Mm -hmm. in his actions while also remaining pretty inscrutable. There's some reactions that he has to things where you look at his face and you're like, what is this guy thinking and feeling? I think about his conversation with Carson Wells before he shoots him in Carson's hotel room. Mm. And he says something, you know, philosophical and strange. And Carson Wells says, you go to hell. And the way that Shiger tilts his head and says, hmm, all right, it's like, did you hear what he said? Like, are you, what are you responding to here? What are you thinking? 
is cursed. He's such a force of nature. A force of evil. <laughs> Woo. I think what's interesting about the character of Anton Sugar is that on the macro level, he is supposed to play this role of a force of evil. Like something mythical, you know, something unexplainable, something that is powerful and almost like this thing that you cannot touch. Mm -hmm. He always finds you and you can't touch him and he always gets away. There's something like an evil spirit. He's not really human. But even though I said that, Javier Bardem's performance makes sure that you understand he's still a little human in there. Mm -hmm. Because he has those little reactions to those things. His conversations with all the people that he kills. Right. There's something human there. It's just not the human that we like to see. Yeah. You know? the, uh, I was sort of reminded of... Do you guys know in Terminator 2 Judgment Day when... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen that, actually. Oh, it's it's one of the, it's the best Terminator. It's really good. If we ever do a James Cameron um, series, let's, we should do Terminator 2. But he, it's sort of like he's halfway, he's still a robot, like he's still a killing robot, but he's like starting to like grasp onto like some human qualities. And it was really fascinating to see Schwarzenegger struggle through that. Have human qualities. <laughs> <laughs> and Bardem doing it like to a T with like a horrible wig on that on anyone else would be incredibly distracting and hilarious, but his just pure force of evil slamming through any haters of the wig. He's still hot. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I would not go that far, Eli. I'd go that far. <laughs> One of the other things that humanizes Bardem's character, while again, also keeping him kind of mysterious, is the engine of most of his scenes, and a lot of scenes in the movie, really, is what is sometimes called process sequencing. This is when a scene is built off of a character going about an action with a concrete physical goal at the end of it, completing mm -hmm. a task, doing a chore, even, you could say. Yeah, yeah, we love that. We here. love process. <laughs> How do you call it? Process. We love process sequencing. sequencing. Yes, process sequencing. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> Keep on going. But it's not just that we're watching him complete a task. It's that we're also figuring out what the goal he has is as the scene goes on. Think about the scene after a shootout with Llewellyn Moss in the street. He goes to a pharmacy, he sets a gas tank on fire on a nearby car, <laughs> and with the distraction that creates, he goes into the pharmacy and steals medical supplies, which he'll then use to treat his bullet wound. But you don't know that that's what his goal is going into that scene. Mm. You only know that if you've seen the movie already. And on a first time viewing, you're piecing together what he's doing as you're observing his process. There's a lot of information that you're learning in the moment without being explained. That both lets us into what his goal is and keeps us at a distance from figuring out what he's really about moment to moment. The kind of quote unquote mystery of what he's doing is the thing that draws you in. Yes, right. exactly. Yes. And then like it keeps you interested. And you have this also with Llewellyn Moss as well, because he also has these process sequences. Right. But that pharmacy scene, I had I wrote in my notes. This is the most ridiculous way to rob a pharmacy. <laughs> like, the most outlandish thing you could really be doing. And he's doing it and nobody sees this? Like, what? Yeah. 
But it's so weird because he's such a wild card yeah. that even when you think you know what he's trying to achieve, maybe that's not even, like, what he's going for because he just, like, maybe just wants to destruct something or he just wants to kill someone. It, it, he's, he's such a wild card, and it's so fascinating to see him on screen and you're you're scared as a viewer you're you're scared for for the characters around him like i keep on thinking about that gas station scene which is scripted so beautifully yes. where he goes yep. up to the clerk and he has this conversation mm. and you can tell that the clerk is really ticking him off and then it gets to the point where he brings out his his classic coin toss where it determines whether they get to live or they get killed by him whether they call it correctly or not correctly and the guy's still not getting it and he eventually he just never really gets it by the end of the scene yeah he doesn't get it as an audience member my heart's thumping i'm at the edge of my seat i'm like don't do it and and the whole scene is filmed in just basically two medium close-ups that just cut back and forth mm -hmm. and it's just like a regular conversation scene but the way that the dialogue is written and how it is timed out in the edit, it's one of the most tense scenes in the entire film. Wait, I got two notes about that scene. First thing is, most of that scene is word for word from the book because oh. it's in the first few pages, word for word. But there's one key difference, which is that at the end of the scene in the book, Shigur has a monologue. In the film, he doesn't. Good. He just walks away, which I think is... The Coens at their best when they are very, they're very efficient filmmakers. Mm -hmm. They don't ever say too much. They try to say less and then they always let you fill in the blanks. And so in the book, he kind of talks too much and he's trying to like give his worldview or whatever. It's too much. And second thing, one of my favorite shots from that sequence, aside from those two shots, is the rapper. Yeah. Incredible insert yes. that yeah. is used for tension. It's kind of ridiculous. And the Coens have such a talent for finding perfect inserts mm. that aren't just about conveying information they're about conveying tone or to give you an idea of character right and they do it very very well i'm sure there's countless examples across the filmography that shot has its own internal timing and rhythm that contributes to the edit right and it's that concrete timing that creates tone as well another thing that we can say about anton chigur is that he has some sounds associated with him so most of the movie operates without a score Removing the score was Ethan Cohen's idea, and Lievse says, quote, The idea here was to remove the safety net that lets the audience feel like they know what's going to happen, end quote. There are 16 minutes total, including the credits, where non-diegetic music comes in, written by Carter Burwell using singing bowls. I've seen No Country for Old Men three times. This is the first time when I noticed score at all. At the end, when the sheriff Ed Tom Bell returns to the motel and he almost encounters Shigur, mm -hmm. there's a bit of this low kind of drone. And I didn't notice it, but I read online that there's score in this gas station scene. So oh. it's scenes associated with Shigur. He brings this kind of otherworldly, non-diegetic, mythical drone with him. And also... I want to mention the sound of his weapons as a way to bridge in more information about the sound here. Hmm. So he has a captive bolt pistol, and that is the sound of a pneumatic nail gun. About the nail gun, Craig Berkey says, quote, I wasn't looking for authenticity, so I didn't even research cattle guns. I just knew it had to be impactful with that two-part sound like a chuchung, end quote, which is just so <laughs> scary. When I think about sounds that I remember from No Country for Old Men, it's that. And I also think about the pneumatic shotgun with the huge silencer that Shigur has. That sound is comprised of a few different elements that got picked up in a completely unrelated scene 
the Coens were filming and a TV was on maybe in Moss's trailer and the sound recorders picked up some bass heavy thumps from the TV that was playing. That sound goes into Chigurh's shotgun. Hmm. But I think it's notable that that's not a sound that's from a sound library or even constructed from independent recordings. Hmm. It's a sound that got picked up on set by the production sound mixer, Peter F. Kurland, right? So that's the kind of detail that makes the sound team so sharp, is that they're using things from the movie and repurposing them in clever ways to make this entirely distinctive sound. And also, it sounds different in different contexts. When it's in the motel room, it sounds different than when Chigurh is shooting from the hotel balcony Mm. out onto the ground where Moss is, you know? Mm. Yeah. That kind of thing makes each scene distinctive in my memory. Yeah. It's like a personality marker. In our Alfredson episode, we mentioned a quote from him where he talked about the importance of silence to break up sound effects to allow the audience to really hear it. That's absolutely running through this movie. Mm, So true. Mm. I feel like they're so comfortable in the silence of this movie and just making Mm. you as an audience, like, wait (laughs) for the next sound. Yeah. (laughs) Just, like, wait in fear. (laughs) (laughs) And then the only other thing is that Bardem easily has the lowest register voice of the cast. Mm -hmm. And that is intimidating, too. Yeah. It's so fun to just hear this movie because even like yeah you were talking about like even the ambience of every location is so distinct and adds to it and it it seems like so much fun working on a sound team but also like out of all the things on a film set I feel like that's the job that I could not do out of everything (laughs) so (laughs) everything else you could do though (laughs) not to say that I could do them but that's the farthest of my skill set. <laughs> That's why I think it's like so interesting to see these masters at work. Because they're just like pulling sounds from places. It's crazy. Yeah. Even more than the ambience of every location, every scene is different. Within a scene, the ambience changes when the camera cuts. Yes, yes, so yes. Think about Moss on the planes as he's pursuing the deer that he's shot. Mm-hmm. When the camera cuts to a new spot, the wind shifts. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's yeah. like a sonic jump cut. Yes, yes, mm. yes. But the effect of that is that we hear what the camera could conceivably hear. Right. It keeps us very grounded and physically present in the space. Yeah. And I think that's part of what keeps the tension up, too. Because what usually people do is carry on the sound even while the camera cuts. But they're intentionally changing the ambience of it to, like, draw attention to the sound design and make people pay attention to what they're hearing. Yeah, I think they would probably disagree with, you know, draw attention to the sound design, but it does make you lean in and really listen for what the characters are listening for. Right. Because so much of this movie is about detection and finding the next clue, and they're doing that by listening closely. Think about... Llewellyn Moss in his hotel room when he knows that Shigur has found him oh. and is creeping up. Hmm. There's a great interview with the sound team on ondesigningsound.org from 2007, and they talk about how there are sounds of Shigur unscrewing a light bulb to turn off the light Yes, that I can't hear when I listen on my computer mm. or with my headphones yeah. or even on a TV in a living room. But you could probably hear in a theater, but it's still there. Well, I heard it. Mm. <laughs> oh, I don't think I noticed, even if I could hear it. It's so subtle, but they really thought about what's happening in every conceivable space that the camera could be hearing. Should we talk about the editing of that scene? Because that scene was when I was like, oh yeah, this movie is a masterpiece. I just remember. Crazy scene. Yeah, because that scene, the tension is (laughs) 
insane. You know he's not going to die because it's the first 20 minutes of the movie. <laughs> but it still feels like your heart's going to fall out your chest. Yeah. It's not the first 20 minutes of the movie. Wait. Okay, maybe the first hour. Okay, yeah, within the first hour. when they, It's in the hotel, right? That's like the halfway point. Within the first hour. That's a scene that I got shown in Sight and Sound, which is mm. a production class, as an example of how to use lighting mm. effectively in a scene. The play of shadow and light and lack thereof in ratcheting up tension. Wait, which hotel scene are we talking about? Because I realize there's many hotel scenes. Oh, I thought it's the one where Josh Brolin's sitting there and then it's the second hotel, the one where the that's upstairs. The first one is the oh. motel. The hotel has stairs and it leads to the street shootout scene. I'm talking about the first motel oh, right okay. now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's talk about both because they're both incredibly constructed scenes. Because they're yes, both really yes, great yes, scenes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. In the motel scene, the cuts back to Moss from Chigurh's experience shooting the cartel men are motivated by sound. So it's whenever a loud shot goes off, it cuts back to Moss. Mm. And that's just another thing that puts us into the shoes of the characters. Right. It's cutting based on the attention and what characters notice. Mm. The thing that I thought about when I watched that scene was that at the end when Sugar kills the Mexicans who were looking for the case of money, I was a bit confused at a point. I was like, why are there people here? Why do they have guns? But then I kind of figured it out later on in the film that those other parties looking for the money. Yeah. But when Sugar looks into that vent and sees the scratch marks, the first thought I had was, I didn't hear that. Hmm. That kind of tells you that there are so many things that you are listening to. And when you don't hear something, you know you've been distracted. Mm -hmm. Or I don't know whether I was distracted or I was misled. You know what I mean? We get that information from seeing Brolin trying to reach for the suitcase and pull it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know I know he took it. Yeah. But from Anton Sugar's perspective, I don't remember hearing this screeching. Mm. Right. It seems like I should have heard some screeching, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because those scratches were from when he first placed them in there. When I saw those scratch marks. It's like an image you can hear. Mm. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Man, the parallel editing is so strong because you basically have two processes at the same time. Yeah. Right? And then they start intermingling and they start informing one another. And the placing of attention of the viewer changes how you feel about what's going to happen. Right. Because obviously at this point in time, you're aligned with yeah. Llewellyn and you want him to get away. And so watching Anton Chigurh commit this massacre next door is insane. And then you don't see Llewellyn get away. You just know he gets away because mm -hmm. Chigurh sees that the case has been taken. Yeah. That's just a simple, effective way of constructing a scene. Like it's not yeah. like rocket science. It's not crazy filmmaking. The Coen brothers are not yeah. fanciful filmmakers. There's also so many important moments that are omitted from you experiencing them mm. in the film. Like mm -hmm. another notable one is Llewellyn's death. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, you just arrived there. I'm like, oh, who's that body? And I was like, oh, shit. That's Llewellyn. That's, our, yeah. that's, that's who I'm supposed to be emotionally connected to. And he's gone. <laughs> and he's just done. Yeah, I was like, is there something wrong? Did, did, did something skip? Because the previous scene is Llewellyn talking to the random lady who wants to sleep with him. Yeah. And then it just fades to black. And it's kind of strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you go in to see Tommy Lee Jones playing the sheriff entering the scene and it goes all handheld which is actually quite rare in this film mm -hmm. and it's one of the times where he feels quite close to the case and to what's going on you know because for most of the film the sheriff is quite detached from the going-ons of the violence and the money and the drugs 
But here he's like feeling the full force of what is at stake yeah. or what is happening with Anton Sugar. It's it's a pretty crazy scene. Every main character gets at least one moment of POV glance object editing mm. where we get shots directly from their optical perspective. That is Ed Tom Bell's approaching Llewellyn's body in the doorway of the hotel room. Right. When it's handheld and he's looking at the carnage and bullet casings and the woman who is floating dead in the pool. I think about this choice, why there are omissions of characters completing key actions, whether that's escaping the clutch of another person or, well, dying. And mm. and I return to the street shootout scene where something occurred to me. Oftentimes, when there is a perspective switch within a scene, we're switching to the person who is lower status or losing or about to lose the fight in some way. In the street, we're with Llewellyn Moss as he's fleeing Shigur. Just before Llewellyn Moss turns the table and gets a shot on Shigur, we're with Shigur. Mm -hmm. And the camera's close to him, and then he's the one who's surprised by Moss popping up. Right. So when Llewellyn Moss is killed, and that happens off screen, we cut from Moss's experience over to Sheriff Ed Tom Bell as he's approaching the scene and he realizes that he's lost everything about this case. Right. And it's just utter chaos. Right. Even though Moss is losing his life, which is the ultimate thing to lose, that's the moment when Bell's spirit is just crushed. Right. There's something about the way that the Coens keep on putting us on the losing experience yeah. in this movie. Isn't it sort of like similar to what how Hitchcock describes suspense as like, oh, the audience knows something that the person doesn't, like knows something that's about to hit them that they don't know. Well, I don't know. At that. least in the street shootouts. Yeah, yeah, right, right, in the street shootouts. Yeah. I feel like they do purposefully take away information quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. So they can sort of surprise you later, like, for example, Llewellyn's death. They're pretty good at omitting to make their film efficient. Like, I, I think the word that I keep coming back to with the Coens is efficiency. Mm. Outside of no country, even when their narratives can get the loosest, mm. they can be very efficient mm. filmmakers. Like, I think about... Carla Jean's death, mm. right? That scene, we don't see her die, which thank God we don't have to see that. Yeah. <laughs> but we get the point of that scene really quickly is that Carla Jean's the person who decides not to play his game, right? Yeah. yeah. And that puts her in a position of power over him. And then it just cuts away because that's the whole point of the scene. And so they don't really spend too much time on violence or on how a scene concludes when it doesn't really serve a narrative function, right? But by doing that, they also kind of keep you on your toes for many of the scenes because you never really know what's going on. Like, right. you look at the stuff happening with Woody Harrelson and Steven Root. I have no idea what's going on there. Like, who are these people? What is this organization? Yeah. What, like, what's happening with the drug <laughs> money? I don't know how any of that connects. I am still confused as to how Steven Root fits into the rest of this. I think I get it. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter if you don't get it because... It just kind of happens. And like Woody Harrelson just kind of comes in. This whole subplot with this organization feels kind of irrelevant, but it is critical in terms of plot. It's how we get Sugar connected back to Llewellyn. Everything, including the things that are at first glance confusing or seemingly irrelevant, ties back in both thematically and through the plot. Mm -hmm. Josh Brolin. Uh, <laughs> Josh Brolin, not necessary. <laughs> no, he is necessary. <laughs> Uh, just because you mentioned Carla Jean's death, Ben, that's one of the things that they changed from the book uh. is that Carla Jean sort of falls apart upon encountering Shigur. It mm. feels like the Coens made the perfect decision to have her be the kind of ideological and experiential counterpart yeah. to right. Shigur. Mm. Yeah. And even if it ends with her death, which it's implied it does, that scene is the thing that cements the thematic statement in the end. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could almost see Sugar shaken a little bit. Like, he's almost scared. Like, he's confused. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good scene. Like, I think they yeah. make a good choice. Speaking on changes from the book, like I mentioned how I was confused by that scene when Llewellyn dies and whether I missed something. So I went to look into the book to find that scene. It's even more of an understatement Mm. in the book, (laughs) which is kind of crazy when you think about it. There's a very long scene of him talking to somebody. I think it's a lady. And then after that, it cuts to the sheriff. And then he's just driving up to a motel and there are cops there. And he's like, oh, what's going on? And he's like, oh, wait. That's Llewellyn. That, that's the whole scene. It's such an understatement. Yeah, you just lose Llewellyn completely. Damn. Yeah. Damn, what a narrative choice. Yeah. Yeah. Bold narrative. A lot of what makes the narrative strong, it comes directly from McCarthy's writing. There's something very sparse about it yeah. that is so powerful, and but that's also yeah. why it lends itself so well yeah. to the screen. I feel like it fits so well within the whole Coen Brothers filmography and the idea of you get what you give. Mm. In my head, Llewellyn took the money, he didn't save the guy who needed water, and he sort of got from that. Yeah. Similarly to how, like, Carly Jean doesn't accept the game and then Sugar kills her and then right after gets hit by a car. Like, I feel like there's so many you do something, something comes back to you sort of moments that clicked in my head. I don't know if it, it worked in the same clean way for you guys like it was very clear in my head like oh this is like the big like macro game that that the writer is playing here with these characters making these decisions Mm. i agree and also i think there are some curveballs that they throw in there for example with Llewellyn not giving the dying cartel man water the thing that ultimately gets Llewellyn deeper into trouble is that Mm. he goes back to give the guy water. Right. And then he encounters the truck that chases him and the dog that chases him and he gets his first bullet wound. Also, with Chigurh getting hit by a a car in the end, he is ultimately helped out through the generosity of two young boys who are bicycling by and they at first don't accept his money for the shirt until Chigurh forces it upon them. Mm. And that scene is a counterpoint to an earlier one when Luan Ma is crossing into Mexico Mm, and he has to pay and deal with teasing from these three teenagers who essentially begrudgingly and only through extortion help Moss. Yeah. That scene is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) It is really funny. Yeah. Because at the end, Llewellyn asks for the beer and the kid's like, (laughs) how much do I get for the beer as well? And his friend's like, shut up. (laughs) It's like, shut up, Brian. Don't do this. He's dying. (laughs) That's a really funny scene. Earlier, Wilson, you said that this movie's so serious. It is. But there are some really funny moments. Yes. yes. I want to go here. Yes, there are. <laughs> it's true. It is true. It is true. When Moss wakes up in Mexico and the mariachi band is playing in his face. <laughs> yes. And then he unveils his gaping bullet wound soaked in blood. <laughs> yeah. The poor band just stops playing. <laughs> it's such a good moment. Yeah. They were a good band. But but back to the... Back to the... Back to the previous point i just wanted to add one more thing which was about tommy lee jones's character yeah who in my opinion chooses not to play the game like every time he's offered the opportunity to go in and like do some investigating he's just like no i don't think i'm gonna do this yeah and at the end he's just he's chilling he's chilling it's because he's an old man now and this ain't no country for him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But it's true the fact that if you don't want to play the game, you won't get hit. But I don't think it's that he doesn't want to play the game. I think 
Like, I don't think the sheriff's character is that he doesn't play the game. I feel like he feels out of step with this game. Like, he is from another time. Right. And something has gone wrong. And I think there is a comment here about, like, if you want to go into, like, deep thematic territory, right? I always do. Mm-hmm. There is some commentary here about the dark heart of America, which is money. Uh... Right? And which is the root of a lot of problems in many, many, many Cohen films. Yeah. Money is always at the core of their films. There's a reason why there's a suitcase of money in Fargo and there's a suitcase of money in No Country. Human greed for the greenbacks <laughs> is usually what causes downfalls of Coen Brother characters. Yeah, for a while, the messaging and kvetching by Ed Tom Bell about the past and the way things have changed veers on the edge of a sort of conservative argument yeah. on, look how things have changed, the past was better. Mm. But... I think importantly, that gets refuted by the man who Ed Tom Bell visits, named Ellis, who was his grandfather's deputy in the shack with all the cats. And Ellis sort of says, like, he tells a story of a man who was brutally murdered in, like, 1908. Point of that is that, no, it's kind of always this way. Ben, as you're saying, it's sort of just in the heart of America. Mm -hmm. There's always greed and violence, and that's just sort of the way that this country works, and it's... It's always terrible. Yeah. And also it's refuted by the kind of everyday normal humanity of Ed Tom Bell's wife. Yeah. We hear Ed Tom Bell's voiceover sort of bemoaning the way things have changed at the top of the movie. But the first time we meet him, he's heading out from his home and his wife tells him to be careful, to not get hurt and to hurt nobody. And that's kind of like a nice three-part little rule for how to stay above the game. Yeah. And sort of unintentionally, that's what Ed Tom Bell does. Yeah. Because really, the bad way to say it is he's a coward, but I think the better way to say it is he values life. He values his own life, and he values the lives of others. And that's why he's not cut out for the ugliness that runs through this movie. Right. He's above it, in a way. He's above it. I have a question. I can't remember if it was one of you who said this just now. Maybe it was in my... I imagined this, but... (laughs) Because we were talking about comedy earlier. There are funny moments, like really bleak and dark comic moments in this. Yeah. But this is generally quite a realistic film in many ways. Uh When you think about the rest of the Coen Brothers films. Right. But do y'all think that this is or is not a heightened filmic world? What you're pointing to, Ben, is that the absurdity in some of their other movies marks itself as such Mm. by planting a comedic flag on the absurdity. But here, there's still as much farcical misunderstanding and characters just not reaching each other in time. As Ed Tom Bell says, now that's aggravating (laughs) when he encounters the milk. That means that Shigeru was just there. But the absurdity is still here. It's just not marked by comedy. Yeah, I would agree with Eli. I still think that the coincidences and the character types, like, Shigur leans more towards, like, a a tall tale of of this this serial killer rather Mm -hmm. than something that is real. That is, like, the biggest tell for me that this is still above heightened reality. Okay. I have one bone to pick about this film. (laughs) Go on. One. Go. Okay, and it's not really a big bone to pick. Pick that bone. So this is from me watching all these Cohen films, is that sometimes I find that they're a little alienating because of the heightened world that they create, mm-hmm. right? The Cohen's traffic in a lot of exaggeration, a little bit of caricature, mm-hmm. yeah. especially when it comes to characters, but they're really good at it. They're really good at creating characters out of thin air. Within 10 seconds, you get a very full sense of a character, even if it's quite extreme. 
You'll see that in, for example, Raising Arizona. You see this in Miller's Crossing, which is a gangster movie, but it's a bit odd because the characters can be quite one note. Mm. So my bone to pick is actually Carla Jean's mom, which I think they characterize in a very ham-fisted, yeah. almost like a parody of a mother-in-law, yeah. right? And I found that quite frustrating because they use her as the reason why yeah. Llewellyn... She is such an important part. Correct? Yes. And I was a little irritated by that because I've been thinking about the place of women in Cohen films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talked about Carla Jean. She has a great moment. But then with Carla Jean's mom, she's played as the downfall of a man. Right, because she talks too much, blah, blah, blah. And Llewellyn has talked about how annoying she is throughout the film. I was Googling about that scene when Llewellyn dies. And I was trying to find out what people thought about that ellipsis. Mm -hmm. And I found this thread where somebody asked, how did Llewellyn die? Some asshole's answer was, he died because of his wife. Because his wife brought her mom when he told her not to bring her mom. And basically loose lips sing ships, blah, blah, blah. And the wife is the reason why the husband dies. Which is bullshit because he dies because he stole the money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? In the grand scheme of things. But because of the way they've placed this kind of easy target into their film, using this kind of heightened caricature of a character, yeah. it kind of irritated me because it felt a little imprecise. Mm-hmm. Right. It felt like the Coen's going to help but push this little quirk into the film. Mm. It frustrated a little bit watching it because so much of the film is so precisely tuned and then you get to this point. Like, even the outlandish characters, like, Woody Harrelson's character is pretty outlandish, mm-hmm. but he fits into the world, yeah. you know? But then you get Carla Jean's mom being kind of, not even close to being a real person, I would say, yeah. in the context of everyone else. Anyway, that's my soapbox <laughs> and down. I think I agree, Ben. One of the distinguishing things that I'm thinking about with her is that we never see her in her own space. And the Coens, mm-hmm. part of what makes the Coens so great at creating characters out of thin air is that you often see characters in the context of their space. Mm-hmm. Think about the woman who is in the trailer that Anton Chigurh visits when he's trying to figure out information about Llewellyn Moss. And she says, we can't give out no information. Yeah, yeah. We are very purposefully seeing the desk space around her. Right. And we get a read on her very quickly. That yeah. feels specific and not caricatured, even though she is really there to be a plot obstacle to Chigurh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't see Carla Jean's mom's space, and she becomes a narrative convenience. It wouldn't bug me if it was not that big of a plot point. Yeah. I don't mind her being the plot point, but I think it's more of a treatment of the character, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, when you play her this way, then it seems like she is running her mouth, right? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of how they're playing her. She's running her mouth. Right. But she's just an innocent person who doesn't understand the world that is happening around her. This high level of, of crime that she's currently embedded into she doesn't know this right like if i was in her position i could be saying anything i don't know i don't know what's coming i don't know what trouble llewellyn is in it's really about the treatment of the character and so i think it's okay to laugh at characters even that lady in the trailer park there's something funny about that scene because she doesn't even know what she's up against Mm -hmm. she's just being kind of bitchy but it's a funny scene because we've already seen sugar kill somebody yeah we've already seen what he can do and she's just like uh I'm not doing nothing. I don't care. Whoever you are, I don't... Get out with your stupid hair. That's kind of like (laughs) her vibe. And it is funny. And I I wouldn't say you're laughing at her, but there's something about her character that is funny. Yeah. Right. You know, because she is... Because like I've said, she doesn't know what she's up against. I definitely want to return to this thread in our subsequent Cohen episodes about the placement of women in their films and in the placement and often lack of people of color in their films. Mm -hmm. I do think they have a lot to say about the violence and darkness of 
white male America. Mm-hmm. That's pretty self-apparent. And in Fargo, it's positioned against Francis McDormand's character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But here there's less of a counterpoint, unless we're really talking about Carla Jean's last scene, I think. Mm-hmm. I got one thing about this, but I don't know where the hell to seg into it. Naturally, what was the last thing we talked about? Gender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be hard to segue from that. I feel like we always end up talking like the gender is always like one of the last things. <laughs> like we just like always like just talk about it before the end of the episode. Or like, yeah, there's not a lot of women in this movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's it. Our episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Oh yeah. By the way, this movie sucks. Peace. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do we? Hmm, hmm. How do I? How do I segue into this? What topic is it then? I just want to talk about detail like the sweat under ed tom bell's arm is a great detail <laughs> i saw that this time and i was like wow they, they like put that in there i didn't notice put that sweat. no no because i this time when i was watching it like i realized there's so many great details not not just details in an insert but details in general you talked about that lady and her space right yeah and how that creates oh this is a good segue <laughs> that lady and her space and how it creates a sense of the kind of person that she is. Yeah. But there are so many other moments here. Like, I think about the first time you meet Llewellyn Moss, he picks up the shell from his rifle. Mm. And that's a very small detail, but it kind of gives you a sense of the kind of person he is. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's about process, but it's also just like little small character things. That little beat to introduce his character honestly reminded me a lot of our conversation around First Cow and how we meet Cookie Figowitz when he is flipping over a bug. Yeah. Soft Mm. boy. That's true. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I don't think Llewellyn's a soft no, boy. No, no, Cookie Figowitz. <laughs> I'm kidding. Soft boy. First soft boy. Change the name. The production design is so oh, fantastic in how they create a sense of place and character, like with Llewellyn's trailer. You look at like, like the insulation in the bottom of his trailer. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a detail that's there that's a nice detail. But we've talked about costumes. Let's talk about how I thought this was set in the 1800s because I thought I mixed this up with There Will Be Blood. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have cars back then. No, they didn't. They did. I was like, oh, okay. This is a lot more modern. Here's an interesting little production tidbit. When the oil rig catches fire in No Country for Old Men. Ah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when the oil rig catches fire in There Will Be Blood. Yes. Those two movies were filming in similar areas at the same time. The fire caused production to halt on No Country for Old Men because wow. the sky was filled with smoke. What? Oh my god, thanks Paul Thomas Anderson. PTA, new new hair competition. Yeah. <laughs> he was already attacking them for that Oscar. He was afraid. <laughs> he knew they were going to compete in the same ceremony. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. <laughs> okay, here's my hot take for the Oscars that year. I think No Country for Old Men deserves the Best Picture Oscar over There Will Be Blood. They're both great movies. I have not seen There Will Be Blood. Really? So can't say. Oh, Wilson, I think you'll like it. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I can't remember. Maybe we need to do a PTA. <laughs> Couple oh, I think we do. <laughs> but I really love Juno. Wait, what? <laughs> it's like my like, like little like. Oh, Lady Bird was great that year. It was, it was, Juno's great. Juno's great. I, Juno is great. Home slice. What else was in Be- the? Yeah, best picture. Okay, it was No Country for Old Men, Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. It's a good group. It's a good group. That's a very white group. Yeah. What is Michael Clayton? That's the one with, um, we talked about him in this podcast. George Clooney? Yeah, George Clooney. We talked oh. about him. 
Yeah, Amal's husband. Yeah. <laughs> Amal's husband, Clooney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wild year for, for Oscars. You know what I like about this movie? I like that even though so much stuff is happening, they still spend time in the dialogue scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that in the dialogue scenes, you have people telling stories. And I think this happens a lot in Cohen films. Yeah. Where people like to tell little stories within the story. Mm. And Ed Tom Bell does this a few times. Like he tells his dreams. My favorite one is the one where he tells Carla Jean this story. Oh. And then later on, she asks him, is that a true story? <laughs> no, she asks him the name of the character. And he's like, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think that is a very direct reference to Fargo. Ah. The famous thing about Fargo is that they start with a stupid thing where it's this true story, but it's obviously not. Yeah. People thought it was a true story. <laughs> like audiences in real life. <laughs> yeah, but I, I never understood why they did that. And they never really explained themselves too well. People have theories and blah, blah, blah. But that conversation kind of gave me a, the answer to that question. Like I said before, which is one Cohen film will answer the questions of the other. Mm. And kind of what I got from this was that it doesn't really matter if the stories are true or not, mm. right? It really doesn't matter. It's just about whether you believe them. Like, do you believe that this could happen? Mm. Right. Like, do you believe that even if the heightened world that the Coens create, could this happen in America? Right. And the reason why these films work is because you have to believe them to some extent. Mm. No matter how crazy they are, no matter how crazy the Big Lebowski is, you kind of believe it a little bit, you know? That's an interesting way to frame it, Ben. I'm now thinking back on the ones that don't work as well for me, and maybe it comes down to belief. Yeah. But ultimately, I do think that they all have a little something to reflect about America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why it'll be so fun to take a look at an upcoming three very different takes on what that means. Yeah, hello, America. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome. Okay, are we wrapping it up? Yeah, I feel like that was a good ending point, Eli. Good good clincher. In first grade, my my teacher said I was the clincher king in terms of writing the last sentences of writing pieces. Sweet. There's a little fact for you for free. (laughs) A little free fact. (laughs) Cool. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe or follow to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. That's where we'll be announcing our Deep Cut picks for the next three episodes on The Coen Brothers. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Do y'all think they should have a prequel called No Country for Young Men? (laughs) Yes, Country for Young Men. Yes, Country for Young Men. (laughs) Y-M-C-A. No Country for Old Ben. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that old. (laughs) I'm aging rapidly, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Oh, rapidly. (laughs) He's reverse Benjamin buttoning. Reverse Benjamin buttoning. Yeah, a year at a time. So he's aging normally. I got here the same way the coin did. <laughs> what? <laughs> Look, all I'm going to say is I, I got here the same way the coin did. What does that mean? You were flipped? Your parents flipped for you, Eli? <laughs> what? I'm confused. <laughs>